to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich are talking with Leo Gauntmaker, the recently installed CEO of multi-state operator Forefront Ventures. Following Forefront's earning report that boasted impressive full year and Q4 results, our team wanted to sit down with Leo to get a better understanding of the company's success and his vision for the future. With cultivation, production, and retail operations across key adult use states like Washington, Michigan, Illinois, and Massachusetts, Leo and Forefront provide a unique perspective on the exciting growth taking place in those markets. Additionally, we'll get Leo's thoughts on what's next for the industry, particularly as the COVID-19 crisis carries on, as well as what factors are most important when it comes to building a successful consumer cannabis brand. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with Ann, Nick, and Leo. Leo, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're really excited to have you on the show. We've had Chris uh, Chris Crane on uh, from Forefront before talking about, uh, you know, what's going on, um, you know, at different kind of stages in the life of Forefront. Um, and so we are excited to talk to you. You're the new CEO. First, where are you joining us from and, and how is life there? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm joining you guys from Los Angeles. Life here is good. California is shut down in a lot of counties, but uh, can't complain. The weather is beautiful <laughs> and getting to spend time with my family. So no complaints here. Oh, nice. I'm in L.A. too, and it's a little overcast here, but it always seems to get better around 2, 3 o'clock. So um, welcome to the West Coast. Um So like I said, we've had Chris on a couple of times, um, but can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and and your evolution to becoming the CEO of Forefront? Absolutely. Um, so my background primarily was uh, with my dad's seafood company before I got into the cannabis industry. And I got a really great opportunity um, to work within that company, which is the largest specialized seafood distributor and importer in North America. Um, I got to work from kind of the bottom up and take a look at all the different aspects of the company and really um, dig my heels into what a production and distribution model looks like, managing multiple hundred SKUs. And being in Washington, we got the opportunity to enter the cannabis market early. We were the second state behind Colorado. So um, you know, my initial MO was to take what I learned in the seafood business and apply it to cannabis manufacturing and distribution. That was my first entry into the market and we built a, a fantastic company in Washington that became the largest producer processor in the state within the first two months of operating between 2015 and 2017. Um, that eventually turned into what was called Canex and that was the company that went public for us on the CSE in March of 2018. Um, that was kind of my first experience into the public markets and figuring out where we take this business from here. And eventually we ended up doing the merger of the forefront and I kind of kept my legacy role at Canex, which was chief operating officer and transitioned into forefront with the same role, really mainly responsible for the cultivation and 
production processing operations across the board. Um, that's kind of how I got here. Um, as far as the CEO role, it's something that's new for me and um, management and people within the company um, all decided that they thought my skill set was well suited to be CEO in what we consider um, you know, war times in the cannabis industry um, and really in the world today. So it's been very recent. And it's been a great learning experience for me thus far. And that's how I got there. I, I think what's really interesting about you um, and about your journey through the cannabis industry is you are, um, you're very operations focused and, and operational excellence is just something is a, is a mantra kind of among, uh, you know, people in the company. And I think that separates you um, from the other CEOs, um, especially of these publicly traded companies. A lot of them, you know, have more traditional, you know, finance or, or business backgrounds and you come, you know, straight up through the industry. Do you think, I guess, how, how do, how do you think that gives you a leg up on, on some of your competitors? I think it's a leg up in the sense that the industry is finally moving towards what we like to call operational excellence and, and really having these companies starting to be looked at from an operational viewpoint and how well they're executing on their business plan. Um, I also think it helps me and helps the culture of our company. It helps me really, um, get to know my people better by being operationally focused, going into these facilities and working on the ground, on the floor um, with the different employees in the different departments, whether it's in cultivation or whether it's in the lab or on the packaging floor. I think it brings me a step closer to all the people that are working for us, um, which is something that's extremely important for us as you know, we look at our organization and the people that are in it. And, we consider that, you know, the most important part of the business. Nice. Let's talk about some of those exciting business updates that's really started to come out since you've taken over the CEO role, most notably um, a recent announcement that Forefront put out that, you know, uh, your Georgetown, Massachusetts store, um, it should be coming online for recreational in the coming weeks. Can you provide an update on what's going on in Massachusetts, both from uh, a retail standpoint and a production standpoint? Absolutely. So that's correct. We're waiting for the Georgetown store to open for adult use um, second week of August. Um, we don't have an exact date yet, but it's looking like it'll be sometime the week of August 12th. Our Worcester retail location is on the ballot in August to be able to go out for final inspection. We expect that to go well and are hoping that the Worcester location will also be open for adult use by the end of August. As far as production and processing goes, we're extremely excited about what we're seeing in Massachusetts across the board. Um, at this point, we fully implemented our cultivation program from our legacy facilities in Washington, bringing over you know a full set of I, excuse me a full set of SOPs, our IPM program, um, our genetic library, custom feeding schedules, and, and most importantly, having both our grow locations in Massachusetts on a you know fully perpetual harvest schedule um, in, in Worcester, we're seeing yields of up to 400 grams per square foot per year which is very consistent and in line with what we see for our top yield in washington and in georgetown the yields are creeping up towards that number as well as we complete um, a minor construction project where we're swapping out the current lights there for a new set of led lights which we're extremely excited about can you expand on, you know, bringing those, you know, legacy SOPs from what you guys were doing in Washington 
to these other markets that you're working in, like Massachusetts and Illinois? How's that process been so far? Absolutely. Um, It's been an extremely interesting process for us and an educating one. Um, I think what we did really well was bring over our management team from Massachusetts and from Illinois as well, which we can talk about later, um, into Washington for multiple days of training in the classroom, followed up with a week of training on the actual floor. And our team has done a very, very good job of being open for communication at any time, you know, using the same SOPs, the same nutrients and the same growing methods allows us to have our teams to be, you know, to be able to have open communication and be able to help each other as they're facing similar problems, knowing that, you know, all their variables are as close as possible. Um, It took a little bit of time, but, you know, within really the first harvest and a half, we got pretty dialed in and it's been smooth sailing since that. So you basically send everyone to weed school? Somewhat, yes. Um, well, I hope everyone passes. So I want to move to, um, the Illinois market because, uh, we are recording the day before, uh, you guys are reopening, uh, the mission Chicago location, um, which was, uh, looted, uh, when, uh, you know, in the wake of some of the, the protests that happened, um, six, six or so weeks ago. Um, but you're also announcing, announcing an additional expansion into Calumet city. Um, can you talk about what, you know, what's exciting about the Illinois market and, uh, you know, when can we expect to see Calumet up and running? The question really is what's not exciting about the Illinois market. Um, <laughs> what's not exciting? No, don't answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, everything is exciting in Illinois. You know, we think that Illinois is one of the best states to be in in the country right now, especially having one of the 19 licenses that allows for the 220,000 square feet of canopy. Uh, the way the legislature there played out, you know, which is ha- huge, ha- ha- right? Ha- like huge. that's, yeah, that, that's something that would take a, a 600,000 square foot building to house. So a, a massive opportunity for us, you know, very, very excited to get the South shore store back open on the 31st. And we got our special use permit for Calumet city on July 22nd. And we're still on pace to open that store at the end of Q4 this year. Um, Illinois has just been, you know, if you have product, product sells. Pricing has held, has even gone up a little bit. The wholesale market doesn't really exist because most people are vertically integrated. So it's going to take some time for more material to come on board. Um, For us, it's just a fantastic growth and revenue opportunity where our retail stores are getting to see a lot of volume and really helping us figure out efficiencies on, you know, what we need to do and how we need to operate when a volume goes from the hundred people a day to a thousand people a day. Okay. So let's go back to, um, kind of your roots in Washington state. So, um, your background with, um, you know, Northwest cannabis solution is on the product development and, and really branding side. Um, and Washington is, is notoriously, highly competitive. Um, what is your operational philosophy that, that paved the way for such success in such a crowded marketplace? Well, in Washington, even before it got as crowded as it is today, our philosophy and our business model was always to, to build products that are the highest quality at the most affordable price. Um, We kind of looked at the landscape of the industry, realizing how early it is and 
realizing that there's going to be a lot of new users that come on that you know aren't part of the illicit market or the medical market in the past. And we really thought that branding was still a few years off. We thought that price is going to be the leading driver behind people's decisions. And we wanted to attach that quality price to a product that's of the highest quality possible. So we went after you know, the Walmart model. We classes and we want to be the most cost efficient producer and manufacturer in our market. It panned out pretty well for us because Washington ended up licensing ended up licensing 1500 producer processors to start with only 400 retailers. So you're basically competing four to one for shelf space and, and pretty quickly pretty quickly prices started to collapse and you know those who were built on the cost effective model, had a you know, much higher odds of surviving than those that didn't. And you know, we've seen continually for you know, five years now, price is still the leading driver. There are finally you know, a few minimal brands that are starting to not even demand a premium, but that are starting to hold price while prices drop. Um, but other than that, it's really just been a, a race to the bottom and how, how quality of a product can you provide at a very aggressive price, also knowing that the product's gonna be consistent across the board and you're gonna have it available on a monthly basis. So I I think we've done a really good job on working with our retail partners there to develop programs where we're forecasting correctly on our end because they're forecasting correctly on their end. And we've built these relationships that are very highly mutually beneficial and that's kind of how we've gotten our success. All right, I want to stick on this topic of branding because I'm interested in just getting a little bit deeper on how you build that consumer loyalty in these competitive markets. Like, if competitors are seeing that you're 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 lowering your prices, but they think they have a quality product, you know, you're gonna it's gonna be hard to carve out that market share. But you guys are cle- clearly able to do that in Washington and are working to replicate that across. So, what what is gonna build that loyalty? Is it just price and and quality, or is there something else there? In the beginning of any market, it's ultimately price. Price is, is the number one driver. As consumers get more educated, you know, depending on which market you're entering, um, you know, call it a market like California, price is going to matter a lot, but the quality has to be there because you have what's perceived to be a higher educated consumer versus a market maybe like Missouri or Ohio that doesn't have you know, a, a previously existing medical market and you have consumers that are less educated they'll understand quality in due time. Initially, they're only concerned about price. Um, as far as Washington goes, still through today, if any, if anything, we've seen brand loyalty when it comes to terms of a, of a retail location. They are retail locations that have consistently you know, priced their markups less aggressively than others and have passed those savings on to the customers. Customers are loyal to those stores. We don't see as much brand loyalty yet to this day. Today, there's some brand loyalty being built. You know, up until 2020, if you had a product that you thought had brand loyalty and you were selling it for $10 and someone came in with something that was 95 plus percent as good for $8, you're going to lose 75% of your revenue. Now, does that just cover? That, that, it, does that just cover like flour, or are you seeing that like across gummies? Because I'm wondering, like, uh, if somebody starts being able to build this, uh, put out like a really good category, like a gummy or something, is that going to help them long term, or is it? I don't know. 
we make 500 individual SKUs. So we oh. make literally every <laughs> single product you can think of in Washington, 10 flavors of gummies, 15 flavors of heart candy, 10 flavors of caramel candy, 10 flavors of a starburst fruit chew, chocolate, cookies, brownies, tinctures, capsules, and patches, lotions. Um, I, could kind of, I could keep listing them off. Yeah, you, you, you guys are covering the whole, the whole spectrum there. <laughs> the, the, whole, the whole spectrum. And, and really, it, it, it goes, it depends on what product category you're in, but even gummies. You know, we have Marma's, which is the best selling gummy in Washington. And for the longest time, they were at $12. And competitors started coming in at $10 wholesale. And our sales dropped. We had to go match, and then prices went even lower. Today, our Marma sit at eight thirty-three, and there's competitors out there that are selling gummies for six, seven dollars. But we found that at eight thirty-three, our market share holds and is even growing at a slow pace because we do have a phenomenal product. That being said, we still had to drop down fifty percent from where we started. That's com- that's competitive. <laughs> um, that is very competitive. Um, but I mean, uh, but that is very singular to the Washington market, right? Like you're saying in, in Illinois, you can, whatever you can produce, you can stick on the shelves and it's going to, and it's going to sell, right? Absolutely. No need to price at the bottom in Illinois. Just make sure that you're pricing with where the market's at. Right. Um, so I want to talk about, uh, the, um, corporate Leo for a moment. You're relatively new to being the leader of a, of a publicly traded company. What's been the hardest thing, um, to wrap your arms around when it comes to that? The disclosure of information and (laughs) and what I'm allowed to say, what I'm not allowed to say, depending on who I'm talking to. The the kick, the kicks (laughs) under the table. Yeah, that's right. Your shins are black and blue. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I, I have to imagine that like, it, it's gotta be such a, just a fundamental shift from, I mean, your the, the company you grew up in the, the company that your family, um, had founded, that was a private company, right? So it was just you guys making the decisions and, you know, being able to kind of see what worked, what didn't work. Um, you know, does that, do you think being, um, publicly traded, hampers some of the creativity behind what you guys do? Um, and you definitely don't need to answer that question. I just, that was just one that popped up. It's, it's a very valid question. And, you know, everything that I've done and my family has done prior to this has been private. So you definitely have the advantage of being able to make your own decisions, you know, and living by those decisions on the fly. Um, doing that is definitely much more challenging in a public environment. I think I do enjoy having good people around me and having multiple angles of looking at things always tossed around. And I think that our team has done a phenomenal job at making sure that we're streamlined and that we don't have too many cooks in the kitchen on every single decision that needs to be made. Um, you know, that's a gift and a curse. Sometimes it's a good thing to have the extra perspective. Sometimes you gotta just, you gotta, you gotta move quick and, and, and live by that decision. And I think that, you know, it's been a learning process for us on, how to act in what situation and we're doing a really really good job overall as a team you know, making these decisions in a timely manner well some of the de- the decisions that have kind of seemed to have been made have been leading towards a shift in philosophy for forefront where you guys recently sold assets in you know medical markets that to other people may seem exciting like arizona pennsylvania and maryland can you expand on what those drove what drove those decision um and why forefront's focusing more on adult use states now 
Sure, absolutely. So, you know, when we first merged these companies, they were supposed to come together last April. Um, then we had kind of the whole, you know, DOJ issue where they wanted to get involved and take a look at these transactions that were going on for um, antitrust purposes, which delayed us a little bit. And at the time, the market really looked a lot different than it looks today. Last April, you know, we had aspirations of being in 12 states. We wanted to make sure that we're checking all the boxes that the other MSOs check, you know, just being a part of that game. You know, what is your addressable market? How many states are you in? How are you going to operate there? Mm-hmm. With the change in the market, with, with COVID and with everything that's going on, we had to take a hard look at the company. And we have to make some decisions on what we consider our core competencies and what we consider our core markets. You know, we pretty quickly decided that one of the best ways to bring cash into the company without dilution is to go divest of what we deemed as non-core assets, which were the assets that you just described, um, mainly just being standalone retail stores. We decided that, um, you know, we're best at production and we're best at manufacturing and we want to support the states where we put a lot of money into the production facilities with retail in the sense of vertical integration. But being a standalone retail store without the production manufacturing piece is not, you know, is not a core focus of our company moving forward. So all that put together, we decided we would go ahead and try to divest of these non-core assets. You know, it worked out really well for us. We were able to to sell these assets for a nice chunk of money at a very difficult time in the industry where you know cash is not readily available like it has been and moving forward we're looking at our company from the sense of vertically integrated states we have one standalone store left in michigan it's in ann arbor it's doing fantastic and we do have future aspirations of expanding into cultivation processing in michigan and other than that all we've kept in our portfolio is states where we can vertically integrate you know aside from washington where that's not allowed and how has the, the investor response to that, that kind of change in philosophy also been received? It, it seems like it's working out. It's a, a good strategy moving forward that the teams come up with. Have, have the investors, you know, um, agreed with what you guys are trying to do? So far, the investor response has been phenomenal. And the, you know, people are really taken to the fact that we want to streamline and we want to be laser focused to get the cash flow positive with no distractions and only with the best parts of our business. Um, you know, I think our stock price over the last three months is a little bit reflective of investors supporting this theory and this new business plan. And we're, we're pushing forward and you know, doing exactly what we said we would do. I think the, um, there was an interesting kind of confluence of events with, um, you know, the cannabis market kind of um, hitting a rough patch in like Q4 of last year. Um, you know, the the access to capital has always um, and continues to be a real struggle. And then, you know, layer on a global pandemic, um, you know, it, it's been a really challenging environment for, for all industries and, you know, particularly the cannabis industries as, you know, a a multi-state operator, can you talk about how the pandemic and the lockdowns, um, have impacted this model? I mean, it's been, it's been also, you know, a, a blessing that, you know, cannabis is now mostly recognized as an essential service, but, you know, you guys still are not eligible for, you know, some of the, the federal loan program. So, I guess talk about the new kind of monkey wrench that that COVID threw into into the the MSO model. 
Absolutely. You know, as if we didn't have enough problems <laughs> with the China tariff right. before that. Before that, so COVID was a right. nice was a, the nice cherry on top of. To be honest yeah. with you, in, in full transparency, the pandemic has has really done wonders for us as a company. Um, I think for for myself and for management, I think everyone stepped up. And, and did exactly what they were supposed to do. You know, we sourced masks for every single employee every single day, you know, a different mask, a different pair of gloves. We put the tape down in our stores. We got sneeze guards for all the registers. We started staggering the shifts of the departments as they came in, cleaning services every single day at the end of the day. And, and that really made our staff feel like, like we care because we do care. And so everyone really has come together, the culture, in the company and the bond between the employees themselves, the bond between employees and management has strengthened. I think that, you know, all our managers at the VP level and at the general manager level at retail and at at the facilities, um, they've done such a phenomenal job of stepping up and getting things done. I think they got to mature a decade over a span of six months, just like the rest of us (laughs) did in in terms of the business and and, and what's required. We had, multiple states where employees that had extra PTO were offering to put it in a PTO pool for those that, you know, were sick and couldn't come to work. So a lot of really good, you know, kind hearted stuff that came out of this for us. And, you know, on top of that, sales went up drastically. Um, we just had our first $4 million wholesale month in Washington in July. Um, you know, wow. Part of that is prices going up a little bit. Part of that is a lot of stimulus checks and people spending, um, and our retail stores across the board have seen record days historically through COVID. Um, it's, we haven't had you know many cases, and luckily we've been able to section off and quarantine any cases we've had, and there hasn't been a spread. And that's something we're really proud of. You know, having in Washington alone 230 people between three facilities and less than five cases. You know, I think that's a major accomplishment. Yeah, it's a testament to our people and how careful they're being. You know at work and outside of work, which is important to us, right? We're talking about human life here. So, you know, very hard to strike the balance Mm of making sure you're protecting life and then making sure, you know, the people that you employ can put food on the table for their family. I love it. I love that you're able to, you and the forefront mission teams are able to turn this into a positive and like a real bonding moment for the company. That's great to hear because, you know, it's a lot of tough mental stress on people, but you know, when you're working with people, you spend a lot of time with them so that if you guys are using this as like a way to all lean on each other, that, that, that sounds like a really good, good way to run a company. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it really has been the way it's happened. And because those sales went up and even at a time when the company, you know, was financially basically restructuring to get to where we are, we were able to add a 10% hazard pay to all our people that were working. And you know, we did everything we can to make sure that all of our staff know that we really care and we're here to support and we appreciate them coming in and putting in the work during a time like Awesome. All right, Leo. So outside of the $4 million in Washington and sales that, that you guys have generated, what else has been exciting for you just in your time already um, having served, you know, these last couple of months as CEO, as well as what's most exciting for you upcoming for Forefront? Like where do you, what's exciting you about, you know, the second half of 2020 or even next year? Extremely excited to get the Calumet City location open in Illinois. 
We're also going through an upgrade that's funded and will be complete at the end of November, which triples our current cultivation capacity in Illinois. So we're you know, looking forward to having that extra capacity, knowing that we'll be able to sell all of it through our two retail locations. I'm extremely excited about Massachusetts finally going adult use for us. You know, that's been a massive catalyst for us in our get, get cash flow positive strategy. And we're finally starting to see that. So really, really looking forward to see what kind of numbers we can put up from Georgetown and from Worcester once adult use is open. Um, I'm extremely excited to continue seeing the different brands that we developed in Washington enter the market in Illinois, enter the market in Massachusetts and have success. And the last thing I would say is I'm extremely, extremely excited and I'm extremely bullish on the California market. We have a massive project there that we're looking at to complete by the end of the year into early next year. And, you know, we couldn't be more excited to enter the California market with that low cost production automation model, knowing what's happening here in the market today and knowing what we built out for, we're you know very confident that we're going to be able to come in and take a nice piece of market share pretty fast. I was going to ask if you're in LA to make any special stops, but you kind of answered that for me. <laughs> um, so we, we usually end um, our our interviews with uh, with a, with a question to you about how how the media is covering uh, the cannabis industry, and we ask what you think the biggest untold story in cannabis is. So, you know, if you are opening the L.A. Times tomorrow, what's the article you want to see um, on page one about the industry? I'd like people to know that the good players in the adult use industry are doing everything they can to make the business flow smoothly. And they need help from the legislation in terms of things like not allowing moratoriums in certain cities on retail, in terms of allocating more tax dollar to really going after illegal retail stores and illicit grows and manufacturing facilities. So, these are the things that are keeping our industry from really moving to the forefront and into the spotlight. And we need help from the legislature to really follow through on helping the recreational market heal. Do you think that there's going to be any, any help uh, from the legislature, whether it be, you know, with the stimulus bill that's currently being discussed or potentially safe banking in, in September at all? very, very, very hard to pinpoint. And when I say legislature, I'm more talking about local. Okay. Like when, you know, when, when California passed Prop 64, Initiative 64, all they needed to do was put in a provision that said, the people voted for this in the state of California. We are not allowing any individual jurisdiction to put a moratorium on retail locations. If they did that off the bat, the market is probably 3X what it is today because they didn't do that. And now you're in a situation where you have 800 retail stores open that are adult use and probably 5,000 illicit shops open. Uh, Hard to compete. Yeah, definitely. Um, Leo, that's all we got for you. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the, on the green rush today. We really appreciate your time. I appreciate your time. Thanks guys.
A special thanks to Leo Gauntmaker, CEO of Forefront Ventures. Make sure to check them out over at ForefrontFamily.com and visit their uh, retail locations, Mission Dispensaries. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at, at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, guest ideas, questions you want us to be asking. Um, and don't forget to subscribe hit that subscribe button we love to see all our new listeners when you guys do that um and that's one take shay one take